Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Today, again, my guest is from the VC world. My guest today is Stefan Moraes, who is the founder and managing partner of Indigo Capital Partners, a leading venture capital firm based in Portugal. Indigo focuses on software as a service, artificial intelligence, internet of things, fintech, cybersecurity, and digital companies, targeting investments primarily at pre-seed to series A level. With a diverse background as an investment banker, consultant, entrepreneur, and CEO, Stefan was formerly an executive board member at Kasha Capital. He's also former advisor to the European Commissioner of Science and Innovation, past chairman of the European Venture Finance Network. He's an entrepreneurship expert with the Entrepreneurship Center at the SAID Business School. So as you can see, an extremely distinguished career with a wide variety of experiences that I'm sure is going to add a lot of value to our talk today. So welcome, Stefan. It's a pleasure, Anita, to be here. (laughs) Okay, so you have such a diversity of experience. And I'm curious, which of you enjoyed the most so far in your career? Well, I mean, I think that a lot of one's career has to do with circumstances. You know, I was never afraid to change, but also life took its own course and, and I ended up trying all these different careers. I didn't know exactly, like I guess many people, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to be when I'd be a grown-up. And so I was a pretty good student and I ended up doing engineering. And then I ended up going into consulting and I kind of decided that early on I didn't want to do that. Uh, So I went and did my MBA and then I went to try investment banking. Although I suspected I didn't want to be an investment banker for the long term, but I just thought it was a good sort of training. And then finally went into management and into entrepreneurship and eventually got into investing, which is kind of a passion that I found out back in the day when I was in London uh, at the dot-com boom. And then I dedicated my second year at, at Harvard Business School to studying as much as possible about investments and, and in particular private equity and VC. And that's what I wanted to do eventually. I, I kind of discovered that in my late 20s. Uh, which may be a bit late, but maybe not. We don't all decide that we want to be medical doctors at the age of five, right? Well, and if you don't know, the best way is to experiment and and try different things and see which one fits. looks like you had the opportunities to try different, really diverse roles, which is fantastic. And I think that now as an investor, it's a huge benefit for me because I've been on the other side of the table at several sides of the table. So I know how people are feeling and... um, As an entrepreneur myself, I remember having investors across the table and feeling that I was very alone, that I wasn't getting value added out of my investors and they they wouldn't really sort of counter any of my ideas. And so I I think that this shaped my positioning and my attitude as an investor where I like to be not intrusive at all because, you know, it's the CEO's role and the founder's role to do what they have to do and manage the company and drive the growth. But certainly to sort of try and help out as much as possible. And if I can't do it, reach out to people that can help those entrepreneurs and help those companies. So that's, I think I was very fortunate. I've worked in multiple industries in many countries. And I always say that, you know, being a VC, it's probably not a kind of a junior career. It's something that you should probably do after you've gained some experience uh, over many years because you can add more value if you've seen more patterns, if you've seen more situations, particularly if you've seen them from different angles. Mm. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm looking at your video view and I see it says Indico powered by Google for startups. And I know this is something that you just launched in April. So I was going to ask you this later, but it's staring right in my face. I want to ask a little bit more. Can you tell me what this Indico powered by Google for startups is? Absolutely. We are primarily early stage investors and, and typically we would invest you know, anything between 250,000 up to 5 million euros uh, per company over the lifetime of the companies. But in ecosystems like Portugal, where you don't have necessarily the family, fools and friends type of first 50 to 100K, that part of the market was underserved. Google got in touch with us late last year and they told us that Portugal was an up-and-coming ecosystem with already quite a few companies that had done really well, including a few unicorns, which was extraordinary and is extraordinary for the size of the market. I mean, a Southern European nation and that has exported all these companies that many people don't know that they're Portuguese, but essentially they are, you know, companies like Pizzai or Farfetch or Unbabble, TalkDesk and so on. And essentially, they, they announced and they said that they wanted to establish Google for Startups, which at the time was called Launchpad. And so they invited us to become their partners and to apply to become their partners, despite the fact that we were not an accelerator and not an incubator. And, you know, this is not the kind of partnership you want to refuse. And of course, for us as, as investors, you want to sort of build the next layer or the earlier, the even earlier stage batch of companies which will become potentially the new Ronaldos, right? So that's what we did. We, we said yes. We started putting it together early in the year. Then COVID uh, stroke and, and that derailed it for a couple of months in terms of mm. getting done. But we launched it uh, about a month ago. We had about 130 candidates for this initial batch. We selected six companies, most of them B2B uh, SaaS companies, but, but one of them is B2C as well. We're very excited. And, and so we're working with Google on, on sort of adding value. And it, it's super fun because it's, these are companies which where you sort of help redefine the strategy and, and, and the market segments and how you're going to get there and the pricing and helping them hire the first top level people, engineering and sales. And so it's a lot of fun. We love it. I mean, it's probably even more fun than the sort of Series A where you're at already at another level. Nice. And is it um, similar to Y Combinator? How does it work? Yeah, I mean, it's very similar. So, I mean, we get a lot of deal flow. To give you a sense, Portugal only, we had over 1,500 companies sort of reaching out to us or us reaching out to them over the last two years. And we've invested in 10 in the first, in the first year and a half in the main fund. And now we had this 130. And to make things a little bit easier and more comparable, we asked them to sort of fill out uh, a form and put together a video and send us a deck. And this was how we did the initial cutoff. And then basically they stay at our offices for, for one year. So it's not a typical acceleration program in a sense that there is a batch, they come in, they have classes and they go away. It's not exactly like that. It's sort of more of a hybrid between a pre-seed investment program and an accelerator because there's mm-hmm. stocks and there's content, of course, but it's longer. So they stay with us for 12 months or out of which six are kind of acceleration and the other six our incubation, because we really want to be close to those six uh, to 10 companies per year. We can go up to, to, to 10. And despite the fact that the six have already started, we could eventually have another four. So we don't have a fixed... We had to set a date, otherwise people wouldn't apply, right? Typically, right. Uh, they would uh, sort of procrastinate and not apply. So 
So we set to date, but we left room for another four companies to eventually join throughout the year, precisely because we don't want to miss out on, on the best entrepreneurs and on the best startups, as opposed to having a very fixed, rigid date. So it's a different approach, but in a way similar to Y Combinator and, and uh, Techstars and 500, where we have placed many of our companies. Basically, almost all the Portuguese companies that went through those accelerators were invested by us, either at Indigo or before where we were at, at another fund uh, that we spun out of. So nice. we, something we like to do. Okay. So this is a question that I was actually dying to ask you, Stefan. And that is when you're looking at seed and early stage, right? You look at the team and you look at the market. And I'm curious, especially given your background and experience across so many different fields, what do you consider more important? And how do you get better at identifying the next big Airbnb or Uber in Europe? Because if you think about those businesses, right, there was nothing before it that you could compare it to. And and if, if someone came to you with that model, it sounds like a crazy idea, right? So what is your thought on how we in Europe, VCs in Europe can get better at identifying these next Airbnb and Uber? Look, I mean, I'm, in my experience and in all honesty, I think there's a lot of luck involved in life in general. And I think it's very difficult for anyone to sort of identify the next Uber. Uh, it just so happens that it seems to me that it's almost always the same funds which are the winners. So that's something that these type of funds do that do very well. I think we do that for the Portuguese um, market for sure. But I would say that we start really with the uniqueness So we don't start necessarily with the team, and I will explain why. We start with the uniqueness of the solution for the problem that was identified. So is the product unique on a global scale? I think a lot of times in Europe and you know across the world, one of the problems with VCs is that you end up investing in stuff which is, quite frankly, not that original. And so I think that a lot of times, particularly in the US and with the top funds, they really go for something which is... I wouldn't call it a moonshot, but I would say concepts that are unique and truly creative and, and truly novel in, in, in the way that they're approaching a certain problem. And so I think that's the basis. You know, if, if someone uh, comes in and, and tells us something that we already know, that's not very exciting. I think the second thing is, is actually the, the market size, although that sometimes you can fix in a way that you have, an, you know, as an entrepreneur or as a team of founders, you have a certain idea of who could be your customers. And quite often, either the, the idea is really not good and so it doesn't matter, or the idea and the product is really good and you can find much, much bigger customer segments to target. And this could lead to, you know, the company becoming a mega success and, and the global category winner. So that's the second thing we look at. And the third thing is, is team. And the reason why we, we put it last is because, number one, it's something which is extremely hard to measure in a few interactions over meetings. I think that's one of the differences we have in Europe regarding the U.S. The, the, the U.S. pace of investing is so high. I mean, everything needs to be done so fast. that I think, you know, evaluating character and evaluating if these are the right people for you to invest in is extremely difficult if you have to take a decision on, on based on your gut feeling in an afternoon because other VCs are breathing down your neck and who's going to sign 
first that sort of 10 million pre-seed check, which is mm. crazy. So I think that that's also one of the issues with bubbles. And that's one of the problems when you have too much money chasing too few deals. Mm. And I think in some areas and in some geographies in Europe, we we actually have a little bit more of time to evaluate the team. So one of the things that we do, not in the accelerator because that's too much early stage, but when you're talking about seed rounds or series A, we, we tend to do part of our due diligence. We also do psychological uh, analysis in terms of understanding not only if people are smart, right, and if they know what they're talking about, but what kind of personality do they have? Are they the right people to partner with? will they be working as a team with us? Because mm. we are very close to the teams. We're very hands-on. I mean, I have my background. Christina, my partner, is the founder of one of the other Portuguese uh, unicorns. So we're all kind of hands-on and we like to work with people that we like, where you can mm. have also a coffee or a beer at the end of the day and, and be comfortable and have fun in, in a good way. So I think that understanding the team is a long process and you can... Mm. Cannot decide on whether the team is smart and the right fit for your investment strategy, because you know the wrong team can really destroy a great idea and the and a great opportunity, and kind of try to shy away from the sort of ultra egocentric founder, mm-hmm. which I understand sometimes is very much the favored archetype sometimes in Silicon Valley. You know the typical sort of I know it all. I'm super confident. I come from this type of background, sometimes not very diverse type of founder that you end up seeing being sometimes successful. But we never talk about the ones that are not successful, right? And we shy away from that personality type, not because they're not driven, because we like driven people, but we don't, we don't particularly appreciate people that think they know it all and they can't speak and they cannot listen to others. Um, and they cannot form a better informed opinion uh, with by talking with with investors and with other employees, so so that's why we give so much focus to the team, but only after we kind of speak with them many times and after we decide whether the market and the idea is is good enough. Otherwise, there's no point on digging further into the team. Right. Okay. I think it gives some ideas to people listening on how to apply for funding in in the Google Accelerator. When I look at the investments from last year in terms of VC deals, it's always UK, Germany, France, Sweden that I see. Can you talk to me a little bit about what the Portuguese startup scene is like? Uh, where are the opportunities in Portugal that you see? Yes, I mean, I think that the reality that what you see on the news are the big deals. Mm. But a lot of those big deals, they start in Romania or in Lithuania or in Spain or in Portugal. So typically what you have in Europe, and again, this is a difference towards the US, although the US is moving in that direction as well, is you have what I call distributed capacity, right? You have the very diverse early stage ecosystems that provide pre-seed and seed opportunities. And typically those companies eventually, they migrate, not sometimes not physically, but at least in terms of rounds, so the, the funds that will do the Series A and sometimes the seed will be based in, say, you know, Germany and, and the UK and sometimes France or, or Sweden. But a lot of those companies are not necessarily French or German or English for that mm. matter. I mean, Makes a sense. lot of our companies are maybe they're based in, in London in terms of legally based in London or Delaware, of course. 
but they're actually, the teams are here. So I think what, what people don't see behind those big numbers and big deals in Europe is the fact that a lot of those companies are actually not from London. And that's fine, right? It just happens that the biggest funds in Europe are, are based in, in London mostly. And therefore, they become the companies kind of become British to the eyes of the press. So what you have is very distributed capacity in terms of early stage across, across Europe. And then they sort of um, become bigger companies and, and they become invested by those, uh, those funds. And then there's another progression, which is after Series B, they become American, right? Which is also... <laughs> yes. Like a little letter, right? You start in Portugal, then you become British, and then you want, finally you do an IPO in the US and you have all the sales team there. And then suddenly they were American all, all, all along. And they were not, right? They started yeah. by being uh, Portuguese or Romanian. So it's, in, it's a very good ecosystem in terms of engineering talent, really, really high level and very good universities in terms of engineering. We kind of lack talent in sales and marketing. So you have to you know, establish offices in London or in the Valley or import people here and sort of expats to come here and sort of join the teams, which we have done extensively using uh, headhunters and executive search from London to bring people to, to, to Lisbon and Porto. And, and by the way, it's not only about Lisbon and Porto. We have portfolio throughout the country because there's good universities throughout mm-hmm. and we don't have the competing sort of Facebook, Googles, and so on, competing for massively for talent. So you can get very, very good talent at a reasonable rate. It's not cheap, of course, but it's reasonable. Mm-hmm. And you can get really good people as comp- you know, in comparison to other uh, very well-known tech centers. Okay. Well, so I was asking you about opportunities. Maybe you can tell me in the areas that you focus, what are some of the big trends you're seeing or areas of opportunity that you and Indigo Capital is specifically looking at focusing on? Yes. I mean, when you were doing the introduction, you were saying all, all that we do, and it sounds like we do a lot of, lot of different yeah. things. <laughs> in fact, and we are a generalist fund, right? We are geographically focused on Portugal and Spain. We have a lot of deals in Spain as well, but primarily Portugal. And we are broad, but at the same time, if you look at the at the Portuguese market, it's mainly uh, a B two B SaaS market. Mm. You know, in, in this batch, for example, at, at the Google for Startups Accelerator, out of six companies, I think four are SaaS companies, and then there's uh, a couple of marketplaces. And so, and then you have um, the marketplaces which are B two B or B two C, but the majority of the market is is B two B SaaS which is by definition what happens in small markets where you have engineering talent. So there is no, no typical Portuguese customers. Uh, there's, you don't target the Portuguese market. So the Portuguese companies in a way behave a little bit like the Israeli companies. They have great engineering and they go to, to the U.S. straight, which is, which is a good model because you either sink or swim. Mm-hmm. If you sink, you sink pretty rapidly and we don't spend too much capital. We don't waste it. And if you swim, it's good because you're addressing a huge market. If I compare it, for example, to, to, to Spain or France and, and Germany, many times the startups in these bigger countries, even the UK, um, they tend to stay local for a long time. And, mm. and sometimes to then go to the US, it's a bit of a challenge because you have no idea how to address it and it's, you know, costs so much higher. So in that sense, I think the trends we're seeing are the same everywhere. It's obviously AI came, coming of age and IoT finally kind of happening and many other trends that we all know more recently, you know, with the resurgence of e-commerce and digital health and all those sort of general trends. 
I'm not going to speak about sort of moonshots and, and things which are really, really different. So I think the trend is the same. It's just that in some of these countries, you end up finding some, some nuggets. For example, one of our portfolio companies is a company that is you know, 150K north of Lisbon in a, in a small city called Leiria. And these are the guys that essentially design the software that is used by all the major Hollywood studios to produce all the sound effects that we all love when we're watching you know, Game of Thrones or Star Wars. You know, who would have said that this is done by a dozen PhDs in a, a little city north of Lisbon that you know, provide basically uh, Lucas Studios and Pixel and everyone else with the software that creates all those mega hits? Or a company like Appis that we just invested in the accelerator that is sort of addressing the, the beehive uh, management process. Bees are so important in our world, and this is an industry that is just on the cusp of digitalization digitization and, and it hasn't happened yet so you know it's a, it's a, a mix of SaaS and, and IoT to save a super important resource as bees that are uh, responsible for two-thirds of world food production directly and indirectly. I have no idea of this but it's uh, massive so these are the kind of things that, that pop up in, in, in countries all over and then they become at some stage they become uh, UK based or, or American based. Interesting okay so I want to I want to take your focus a little bit to Europe as a whole. And I want to understand from you, how can Europe become more competitive when it comes to the startup ecosystem? Europe obviously has the strengths. We, we have more funding. We have a lot of really good talent. So what in your mind is still yet to be done or missing in terms of accelerating more successful startups out of Europe? So obviously that's a very complex question, but this is something that I was working with at the time with the European Commissioner for, for Research and Innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think clearly one of the big issues, even if, you, if one doesn't tend to think like that when you're based in London or certainly in the Valley, but one of the issues is access to capital. If you compare the European VC funds with American VC funds, it's just a, a, a world of difference in terms of size. And, and size really matters, right? Mm. I mean, we have small emerging funds in Europe. They're probably 50 million or below 50 million in size. And a small emerging fund in the US, if you're discounting the micro funds and the trend of micro funds, they're probably managing 100 or 200 million, right? And, and if, you, if you look at the European landscape, you have very few management companies in terms of fund management companies that overall manage funds which are above 500 million or even altogether uh, managing more than a billion or so. And this is you know, a very average size for the US and you have multiple, multiple funds which, which have multiple billion dollars in the management. And therefore, the risk taking as an investor, if you have more capital available and if your LPs are, are, understand the risk and, and are comfortable with that risk, of course, you're going to deploy more capital. And, and so capital is important because if you start deploying it, you also get more experience. And if you have more capital, you can have better investors in your team. Potentially, if European funds had more capital in the management, even if we didn't have as an industry the same sort of talent VC that some US funds do have and the experience that they have of some VCs in the US have 20 or 30 years of experience in the industry, Potentially, if you have enough capital under management, you can hire them and move them to a top European capital and, and, and make it 
more like the U.S. So I think that capital is a big issue because we cannot forget that the vast majority of, of uh, institutional investors in Europe does not invest in the asset class, you know, corporates, pension funds, public and private pension funds. And then we don't have uh, the universities as, we, as there, there is in the U.S. that provide uh, capital. And again, the pension plans uh, from all the types of employees like, you know, the firefighters and the teachers, pension plans and so on. And that is basically inexistent in Europe. And that makes a huge difference. So I think that there is a huge lack of capital. And if you go to the fringes of Europe, it's even worse. So in some of the bigger countries in terms of VC market size, they have apparently enough capital, but apparently not enough because the US funds still come in and take away the companies at, at higher valuation. So there's still a lack of capital, even in London and in Germany and so on. But if you go to Portugal and to many other countries, I mean, there's a total lack of capital, right? Yep. I'm not saying that we should have too much capital. You don't want to fall into the trap of the bubble too much. And I think in some European cases, France and a few others, sometimes London, sometimes we have a bit of a bubble situation. We had one for sure in the last few years. But, but I think size matters. The second thing is, is very, probably more obvious, but, but it's still a big problem, is the cooperation with corporates. So the big difference in Silicon Valley is that you have all the big tech companies are there. They do a lot of M&A. It's much easier to engage. If you're a startup, much easier to engage with a corporate. You know, the corporates in the US, they're not going to do just a kind of a fake acceleration program where they make sure that you have a few startups around them, but then nothing happens. There's real M&A. There's real customer engagement. Christina, my partner, always tells the story of how when they went to 500 startups, seven or eight years ago, they were a couple of Portuguese founders. They, they got there, they suddenly, they, they had customers without, because they had a great product, product and they had really blue chip customers and they were like a 10 people team. And it took them many years to even in their home country in Portugal to get even a meeting with some of the top corporates here. And this is what I think is also a big difference, right? Is this willingness to, to take risks from the client side when you're a corporate. And then obviously that translates also into m and I think American companies are more used to doing M&A, uh, and M&A is, is the main uh, driver of exits for, for, for startups, and so that we're lacking that. We're lacking an integrated capital market in Europe, and that's something also that the European Union is building, but is building, quite frankly, too slowly. And so, again, capital is an issue, and risk-taking on behalf of the corporates, even if it is to partner with uh, startups, is still lacking. Because the talent is there. I mean, I, I don't buy this idea that there is more talent in the US or in China or universities are, are better or R&D is better. It's not better. It's the same. In fact, there's great universities and great people. In, even in North 150K north of Lisbon, there's amazing PhDs, right? So there's, they're everywhere. It's, it, there's a lot of talent. What we don't have is, is the risk-taking at the same level as the US. And you think that the only thing that's going to make that change is just maturity, growth, more time? Or are there policies and are there organizations that are working to change that? So partially, there's nothing you can do in a sense that, you know, it took London a couple of decades to become what it is today. And these ecosystems take time and you end up, everyone takes more risk as they see the rewards of that risk taking. So good examples and more unicorns and more exits will drive more investment. But I think you can't really wait for that. I think that European institutions and national governments have a role to play. 
and sort of nudging the private sector into the game because we also run the risk in Europe of having, I'm not going to say too much public capital because the pub- public capital is there because the private capital is not there. Mm. But I think what, what the public capitals or the public institutions could do more is really push for uh, private institutions, nudge them and incentivize private institutions and pension plans and corporates to really invest in the industry mm. uh, as opposed to talking about the industry. And I think that we, we sometimes run the risk of having then European-related institutions that end up having a disproportionate size in the market because they're filling in the vacuum of the private sector. And I think that it would be wiser, I think, for the institutions that are driving policy to really reach out to potential private investors across the country. And I know that in many countries this has happened and governments kind of told their corporates that top corporates, listen, we need to get our act together in terms of investing more in in R&D. And I think more should be done because the solution is not to put in more public capital. The solution is to to get private capital to, to step in. Yep. Yeah, I have heard this um, in many um, conversations where the public money that that the government, the grants, etc., that governments put in, are almost doing a disservice to creating the more active and more um, engaging funding ecosystem that we need. Okay, I want to move on to something that I hear from entrepreneurs when I ask them the challenges they had, especially in the early stages. A lot of entrepreneurs tell me that especially new ones, people who are not serial entrepreneurs uh, or not coming from a VC background, is that it's really hard to know what we need to have before we look for funding. So I'm wondering if you can give us your point of view on what entrepreneurs and startups should have when they come to look for either seed stage funding or series A funding. Yes, I mean, that's a very complex answer because it depends on the industry and so on. And it also depends on the country. And I understand the confusion in the sense that if you talk to different types of funding sources, let's say, if you talk to angels, there's also different types of angels. Angels which are really much more conservative and they look for, uh, you know, cash flow producing uh, companies and angels which are like small VCs and really look for the potentially big success cases globally. And then again, there's VCs which are very much focused on having a certain type of returns and others which are essentially looking for delivering the big hits. So I understand the confusion. And, and it's, I think partially Europe is it's an, it's still an immature market. And I often make this comparison with football where... The, the, the players themselves don't know who are the best clubs in Europe, right? It's not clear who is Real Madrid and who is the third division club. They, they have a hard time understanding who's who. And that's partially because there's lack of communication and partially because they also don't do their homework. Because if you do your homework, you should know who's who in the industry. I would say that on, on a seed stage, you know, I don't want to make it general because, it, again, it depends on, on SaaS and on whether it's SaaS or a marketplace or anything else. But as a rule of thumb, I would say that regardless of metrics, in our view, what you really want is the basis of a product that is unique. In fact, this is one of the discussions we've had recently with our new batch of startups is saying, listen, you really need to focus on product. It's not that you want to going to discount your clients at all. You need to have interactions very often and to understand what, what potential clients want. 
But if you don't build an amazing product from the get-go, not a perfect product, which is different, right? But if you don't build the basis of a, of a unique, amazing product, there's no metrics that will save you. Because in the long run, what you want is a winner that is really differentiated and builds a moat around it and has these sort of network effects that really knock, knock competition dead. And you can only do that by having an amazing product that is viral, that customers are willing to pay, and that you have good unit, unit economics. Right? Mm. So you need to see the initial hints that that's going to happen. An amazing product, a business model that probably makes sense and where hopefully you're not going to lose money on every transaction you do. That needs to be in place. And then, of course, if you're at seed stage, you might have some revenue to prove it and some really good following or NPS on behalf of your customers that really, you know, that initial segment of the early adopters, they really must like it. And, and we talk a lot with customers and we, we get their feedback on, on whether they are enjoying the experience and the product and it's going to stick with it. And you see that through cohort analysis and so on. And then at Series A level, you're probably going to have to be already at 100K per month or something around that sort of ballpark figure in, in, in terms of SaaS. And you want to see a product that is ready to scale. If you put in an excellent sales and marketing team, you're going to then want to scale that Series A into a Series B. So moving from seed to Series A, I would say typically you are looking at Series A to have kind of reached product market feed. And at seed, we're trying to sort of prove that you have good, faithful, early adopters that are willing to pay with hopefully decent unique economics and some good revenues on the way to Series A, but essentially the inklings of, of a product that will be really mm-hmm. a category killer. Mm-hmm. Get a product that people are willing to adopt early and pay for. That's the basis of everything else that you're going to need to do later on. Okay. That's, that's, I, I think this sometimes is, is counterintuitive because I know that some investors are going to say, no, no, I, I really want to see all these numbers and I want to see really good data and so on. But ultimately, and we talk a lot and we kind of supply deal flow to Series A and B uh, investors, top investors throughout the world, and particularly in London and in the Valley, that's what they ask. Mm. Uh, quite frankly, sometimes they even say, okay, we have 100 or 200K per month of sales. Now let's go back to the drawing board and build an even better product, right? So right. I think when you talk to really top level uh, investors, that's in the end where they go back to, right? So you have to sort of prepare it from day one. Uh, otherwise, how are you going to differentiate yourself? Because it's sometimes easy to get to the first 100k per month with early adopters, particularly when you're sort of land and expand, so you go from city to city, you get all these customers in different cities, but quite frankly, they're just the early adopters in every city. And so you actually are not proving anything, right? Because they would buy it anyway, but then you can't expand it into an early majority. So that's what's the problem. And and the only way to have a solution is to have an amazing product that will really go from early adopters to early majority and then to mainstream one day uh, once things are rolling. Great. Well, if you're in the audience and you're in Seed and Series A, I think that's solid advice from Stefan. Okay, so we're getting to the last bit of this podcast and I would love to hear from you 
What are five big lessons, lessons that you have learned from your life experiences that you wish you could tell your younger self, especially the younger self that wanted to be an entrepreneur? Those are difficult questions, but I think that we should never forget, number one, that there's a lot of luck involved in life. We're not saying that people should work hard. Of course, they should work very hard. And, and, and I work very hard. I work a little bit less hard now than I used to when I, in my 20s. But you, know, you have to work very hard. But you make, you make your own luck, but there's luck involved. I mean, so when people say, oh, no, there's no luck, you do everything. No, I'm sorry. You, know, you, you graduate in a year where there's a huge economic crisis, and that affects your career forever, right? Uh, it might not, but it probably will. So let us not discount luck. And for the good and for the bad, right? Because I see a lot of judgment also when people kind of say, oh, I'm so successful and these people are not successful and that's because they didn't work hard enough. That's not the truth, right? There's a lot of people which are super smart, super hardworking and never get out of where they are, right? You know, for a number of reasons. You know, social mobility is not there for everybody. So we need to be a little bit more humble about what role in life we we play in our own life. The second thing I, I would say is probably try different things. I think a lot of people come out from high school and universities with a very decided mindset of the way how things should be. And it doesn't, doesn't have to be like that. I think we have too many assumptions. And now that people love AI and algorithms, think about it as an algorithm in your own head, right? If you feed it more raw data, you're going to have a different outcome. So you shouldn't stick to the original idea, fixed idea of, you know, this is going to be like this because I think this is the right path uh, in life. The third thing I would say is that I see people more and more in a hurry. And I think this is pretty uh, obvious advice, but it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. I kind of discovered that I wanted to be a VC in my late 20s and, and I became a VC in my, in my late 30s or early 40s. And so, and that's fine. I did other things which I enjoyed and I made me better, hopefully, and, and grew a bit. So I think people are very much in a hurry. I mean, and, and this is also related to this um, obsession with money, which is not very useful, quite frankly, because it leads to a lot of disappointment and, and a lot of judgment. So taking things a little bit slower is mm. probably better because you think things through and... You don't need to compare yourself to anybody. You do your own thing and um, you should be smart about it and, and work hard, of course, but not try to, to rush things. And I think finally, we go back to the point of judging and turn. I think there's cur currently a lot of cultural wars about what can be done, cannot be done, can be said, cannot be said. I think this is a huge mistake. I mean, we are becoming less and less open to other people's opinions Mm. It will lead to massive disappointment. Right? When we are set in a way that only our way to see the world is the right way, and then when things don't pan out the way we want them to pan out, and uh, I think that for the vast majority of people, you know, they will not uh, have the perfect life that they always thought, you know, the way they thought it would be. And if you're not ready for that sort of shock, and if you're very set on sort of judging the others because they think differently... I think this is a big problem. And so I think it, 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 it comes from this culture of me, me, me. Although people supposedly are uh, very much about we, but in the end, what I see across the board, both entrepreneurs and VCs, is very much a culture of me and my percentage and my 
sharing my money. That sort of focus is a paradox because the same people are the ones that, that supposedly are defending the environment and diversity and this and that, but then they're the first to become super self-centered and to take selfies all the time and, and look at how many likes they have on Instagram and so on. And, and it's essentially at their bank accounts. I think we're setting ourselves up for failure. And I think there's a generational issue that needs to be addressed quickly because if we don't reset our expectations, life will hit you. And uh, I think we need to be a little bit more positive, have um, realistic expectations and not focus only on, on the material parts of life or the fake spiritual life, which I think a lot of people also claim to have, but really it's all about me. So, I mean, those are the things that I think often I, I wish I kind of knew them before, mm. but you know, we all learn with our own mistakes. Of course, of course. Very wise lessons for myself and for people listening as well. So thank you for that. Okay. So in the last five minutes, I wanted to just go to a, a bit more of a fun round where I just ask you questions just to know who you are and what your interests are like. And, and that would be the end. So I'm going to start off by asking Portugal. I haven't yet been to Portugal, but what's your uh, favorite thing to do in Portugal? Well, my favorite thing to do is to surf. I'm a big surfer and I also like to eat grilled fish. Very simple. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. If people were going to Portugal, what is it that they absolutely have to try in terms of cuisine or, or food? Well, I guess, you know, what, what everybody loves when they come here is the seafood. So not only the source of fish, but the seafood. But I, I actually eat more meat than fish. I, I said I love fish, but we eat a lot of, a lot of meat as well. It's, it's a very diverse cuisine. And so I think that's one of the highlights. Portugal is a foodie country for sure. Okay. What about books? What are some books that have really stayed with you that made an impact on, on how you've um, built your life? Look, I, I love biographies. I'm from Warren Buffett to, to many others. I've, I've read, you know, I, I, I devour biographies, but, but also historical books. And I, I recently read 1984. It was one of the latest uh, books by Orson Welles, uh, yeah. that I read, which is amazing because, you know, some of the things, it's not only amazing because he was talking about 1984 when they were in, in the late 40s, but some of the stuff is totally applicable uh, in terms of today. So I think that, you know, reading great authors can never harm you. But I also read recently a book about the scandal with Elizabeth Holmes, you know, the whole bad blood uh, situation, mm. which had, which is really amazing how people can get away with things for, for so long. Or I, I also read recently the, the one MDB, the Malaysian uh, sort of sovereign wealth fund scandal. Again, you know, you just ask, you just look at these at these situations, you read them, and you kind of lose faith in humanity. And at the same time, you you have faith because they were discovered. And again, it's all the same thing, you know. It's this pressure to perform at all costs, this pressure to appear to be successful. And uh, I think, you know, reading biographies from people that are inspiring. I, I read Churchill's biography also um, recently. That's super inspiring, and I think it, it gives you the right sort of perspective in, in life. Nice. Okay. Excellent. So I think with that, we're going to end the show. Thank you so much, Stefan, for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much and, and good talking to you. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you here and all of you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. 
Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building. 